This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders throughout the GEM state. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare of you and me. O is for the outcomes, that's the story we can tell. ECHO all together, well, you know what that spells. Echo Today's episode features a presentation by Allison Smith family medicine physician, addiction medicine specialist, and director of mental health at Delta Airlines on the topic of MOUD in pregnancy. This lecture was recorded on April 14, 2021 as a part of Echo Idaho's Perinatal Substance Use Disorder series. Here to introduce today's presenter is Echo Idaho's former director and session facilitator, Lachelle Smith. Hello, welcome to Echo Idaho Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. I am Lachelle Smith facilitating the show today. We have a talk on MAT and pregnancy by Dr. Allison Smith, no relation, um, who is family medicine and addiction medicine trained. All right, Allison, will you introduce yourself and you can take the floor. Great. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Allison Smith. I am a family doctor and addiction medicine specialist. Joining you today to talk about medication treatment for substance use disorders in pregnancy. So um, objectives today to talk about medication treatment, to review evidence-based treatments in pregnancy, to talk about reducing stigma, and then also to dispel some myths about uh, medication treatment in pregnancy. So what is medication-assisted treatment or medication treatment? Um, It is assisting recovery using medications. For opioids, we often refer to this as MOUD. This is medication for opioid use disorder. And for alcohol, sometimes you'll see um, for like MAUD for medications for alcohol use disorder. For opioids, the three FDA-approved medications are things you've probably all heard of. This is methadone, buprenorphine, which is the main ingredient in um, the medication Suboxone, and then extended release naltrexone, which is an injection called Vivitrol. For alcohol, the FDA-approved medications are naltrexone, either oral or that extended release Vivitrol, and acamprosate. And then there's a lot of off-label medications that have really good um, emerging evidence to support their use for treatment of alcohol use disorder as well. I want to talk a little bit on a slightly deeper level about medications for opioid use disorder because it's a really interesting group of medications. The three that are FDA approved work in very different ways. This looks at um, increasing drug dose versus the mu opioid receptor activity, which is basically how much opioid receptor um, engagement you'll feel. And as that number goes up, people feel, you know, relief of pain, relief of withdrawal, um, Eventually, they start to feel sedation, euphoria, and eventually even suppression of breathing. So how naltrexone actually works, it blocks that opioid receptor entirely. So extended release naltrexone, the way that it functions, 
when people are given it, it sits in that mu opioid receptor, but it doesn't activate it in any way. It just blocks it so that any opioid that they are to take on top of this, they won't be able to feel. It won't give them any sort of reward or feedback and kind of it also prevents a lot of the symptoms of, of the opioid that they're taking. And ideally, people stop using them because they don't get any effect. Buprenorphine, um, I'll talk about in a second, but methadone is kind of that complete opposite. It's a full opioid agonist. The reason it works for opioid use disorder is that it's long acting compared to a lot of the things that people use that cause that kind of feedback and continued use that are short acting, that are in and out of people's systems, causing ongoing withdrawal. Methadone has this really long half-life, sticks around for a long time, and people reached kind of a steady state eventually where by taking more methadone, or taking other opioids, they don't get any more effect out of it. And so that's how it's effective in preventing people from continuing to use an opioid. Buprenorphine sits right in the middle there. It's a partial agonist. It partly engages that mu opioid receptor to cause some relief of withdrawal, to relieve the cravings, but it only will activate that opioid receptor partially. And so people will never get that uh, respiratory suppression, the sedation, and the other things that come with, with other opioids, um, it, you know, unless they're combining it with other substances. So really, it's kind of right in that middle there as far as that activity. Why would we use medications for opioid use disorder? The first reason that I highlight is because by treating this disorder, we reduce overdose risk by more than 50%. And if you look at a standardized mortality ratio at all-cause mortality, the people on medication-assisted treatments, they're standardized mortality ratio approaches that of the general population. So you take this population of people with really high overdose risk. In 2017, one person every 11 minutes. Um, in Idaho, those numbers are a little bit different, but still really awful um, high risk of death. And we get that um, rate back down towards what the general population experiences. In addition to this high overdose and the fact that it reduces mortality, uh, methadone and buprenorphine can treat withdrawal, so give people comfort and relief. MAT offers stability, so people get their lives back. They don't have to constantly be in this pattern of, you know, needing to obtain drugs, living, a, you know, the lifestyle that comes with this. Um, they, you know, in and out of sickness, constantly kind of fighting this, and, and they get a lot of stability, and they can get jobs, and they can get their families back, and they can um, engage in a meaningful way um, that, and, and really change people's lives. And then given the fact that people use less um, uh, when they're taking medications, we lower risk of transmitting and contracting HIV and hepatitis C as well. Why use MAT in pregnancy? It's all of those exact same reasons, plus we really improve fetal outcomes. Um, we lower the risk of HIV, hepatitis, and STIs in, in um, newborns. Uh, we reduce fetal exposure to illicit drugs. We prevent this recurrent maternal withdrawal, these kind of erratic opioid levels that come with um, patterns of substance use. Uh, and, and these kind of patterns are associated with an increased risk of neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome or, or NAS. And then we reduce the instances of um, obstetrical and fetal complications. And like I mentioned, improve newborn outcomes as well. Methadone in pregnancy was first studied in the 1970s, and it was very soon after that that Finnegan first published the NAS assessment tool that we still use today. 
The Finnegan Neonatal Abstinence Scoring Tool, sometimes abbreviated FNAST, that Dr. Smith is talking about here, is a standardized screening rubric used to assess the severity of withdrawal in an infant. It usually enables healthcare professionals to make an assessment, identify withdrawal symptoms, document the infant's withdrawal, and initiate the appropriate treatment regimen. Um, and they think that some of that was actually in response to now medicating women in their pregnancies um, and needing this tool to assess uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome. Um, what we've learned since then is that methadone use in pregnancy is associated with some of the highest retention rates of all medications for opioid use disorder. We see significant reductions in maternal mortality and morbidity for women who are pregnant and, and on methadone. We see improved fetal outcomes. We know that neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome is the, the levels, the amount of treatment required is actually independent of the methadone dose. So you'll hear this a lot in pregnancy, women trying to keep their dose lower, um, wanting to reduce their dose, things like that, that really is not based in evidence. We know that the instances and the severity of neonatal abstinence is, is unrelated to the methadone dose. We've also learned that in pregnancy, methadone doses often need to be increased, actually, because of metabolism, because of circulating blood volumes, and then also split later in pregnancy that um, because again of the increase in metabolism, the methadone doesn't, re doesn't reliably keep that steady state. And we start to see that they may need a dose in the morning and a dose in the afternoon, which can be tricky in a methadone clinic where you walk in and take your dose in the morning, um, it, a lot of pregnant women need to have a take-home dose to be able to take later in the day. Buprenorphine in pregnancy wasn't really studied until the 1990s, um, and then it wasn't readily available until after the, the data 2000, um, which allowed people to prescribe it in an outpatient setting. Data 2000 is the shorthand for the Drug Addiction Treatment Act legislation passed in the year 2000 that authorized the outpatient use of the three FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder that Dr. Smith mentioned earlier, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. And this really changed a lot of things because previous to that, methadone only available in an OTP, an opioid treatment program, which is like a methadone clinic, by allowing people to prescribe buprenorphine in an outpatient setting now really allowed for more flexible treatment or treatment in areas where there was, were no OTPs. Um, and it wasn't until 2005, there was this promise, it was called the PROMISE study, and it would finally proved that there was a non-inferiority of buprenorphine compared to methadone in pregnant women. But in spite of that PROMISE study from the 1970s to 2010s, um, methadone remained the gold standard for pregnancy. And you'll still hear this from people. I have um, you know, even very recently heard providers switching women from Suboxone to, to methadone in pregnancy, um, really something that is, is, is no longer necessary, but I'll talk about that. But this came from the fact that we had good studies. It, it kind of became the gold standard in pregnancy. Um, and then they'll talk about what happened in the 2010s, the mother trial. Um, and mother stood for maternal opioid treatment, human experimental research trial. Um, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010. And um, this study, um, uh, Dr. Henry Jones was the uh, was primary on this. They studied 175 pregnant women with opioid use disorder, and they randomly assigned them to either methadone or buprenorphine. And this was a pretty broad reach um, to eight international sites. And the results of this are really incredible. 
what they found was that compared to infants exposed to methadone in utero, that infants exposed to buprenorphine required 89% less morphine to treat their neonatal abstinence syndrome. They spent 43% less time in the hospital and they spent 58% less time in the hospital medicated for NAS. So if you look at these numbers, you know, just the the days of infant hospital stay for the babies that were exposed to methadone, 17 versus 10 for the buprenorphine group, the amount of morphine received in that methadone arm was 10 milligrams. um, And the total amount for buprenorphine was one. Um, And we can ask, uh, for, you know, input on what people are experiencing now, but this is pretty consistent. We see this pretty regularly. Um, and, and then this infant head circumference was just a marker of, of you know, uh, newborn well-being and, you know, the idea of potentially other things besides, you know, abstinence syndrome, like growth restriction. And we really don't see any difference in the methadone group versus the buprenorphine group. Um, they've even extended to look at the outcomes of, um, you know, past that neonatal period. Um, they got 96 children continue to follow up in that mother trial, um, and they saw no pattern of difference in physical or behavioral development compared to suggest any sort of medication superiority. Um, and the children born in the mother study are following a normal path in terms of growth, cognitive, and psychological development. I wanted to just note also um, for a long time when buprenorphine was studied, it was buprenorphine only, the monoproduct, um, which is uh, the brand name Subutex um, that was studied in pregnant women. And current evidence shows that the combination product, the buprenorphine naloxone, which is Suboxone, is as safe in pregnancy as the buprenorphine monoproduct. And given that the monoproduct is more often diverted and misused, that um, we really do prefer this combination product, buprenorphine, naloxone, or suboxone in pregnancy now as well. I just mentioned naloxone, and we know that the safety profile allows for us to use it in pregnancy. Now, Trexone is the um, the treatment version. Um, we had mentioned this extended release, now Trexone or Vivitrol. Um, there's limited data looking at now Trexone in pregnancy. The largest one was a prospective study looking at 121 patients who were on now Trexone, comparing them to 109 patients on methadone or buprenorphine. Now Trexone was both tolerated by the mother and fetus, as well as the big benefit being that naltrexone not being an opioid at all um, showed there was no neonatal opioid withdrawal at birth, and there were no congenital anomalies in the small number, the 23 infants who had first trimester exposure to naltrexone. So kind of looking at that study, we can guess that there's probably no harm in using it, um, but the kind of stance that is that exists right now based on this joint workshop from the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine ACOG and ASAM all came together. They basically decided that data at this point is insufficient to support initiating naltrexone therapy in pregnant women, but it can absolutely be continued for those patients who are already taking it and already getting benefit, as long as you kind of discuss the risks and benefits, um, including the risk of discontinuing naltrexone, which has a really high risk of return to use. Um, There's also, uh, you know, the risk that um, when we stop naltrexone or when somebody returns 
returns to use after using naltrexone, their rate of overdose is extremely high because of their tolerance being as low as it is. So it's really high stakes to stop using naltrexone. And so with all of this, the recommendation would be continue it in in pregnant women, um, but we're not initiating it at this point. So the question always comes up, which which medication is right? Um, Essentially, the first-line treatment includes either methadone or buprenorphine. And I had mentioned early on with this mother trial that we saw this less severe neonatal abstinence syndrome, shorter hospital stays when using buprenorphine compared with methadone. And you have to compare that to the fact that methadone seems to have a little slightly higher retention rate and um, and the huge benefits there. We know that retention is directly correlated with um, with better outcomes. And so, you know, how do you balance that? Uh, We wonder why there's this high retention rate with methadone. It may have something to do with this really flexible dosing. We can bump methadone doses quite high. And as I mentioned earlier, in pregnancy, we see the need to bump that dose up because of high metabolism. With buprenorphine, we kind of have a ceiling dose where we can't go much higher and get any sort of a benefit. And so that may be why retention is better with methadone. Um, There's also a lot of accountability that comes along with being in a methadone program. And that's not always readily available in a buprenorphine program. So that may kind of play into why there's this higher retention. But all that said, when it comes down to it, patients should just pick which one they want, which one's right for them. People surprise me all the time. They just seem to know for the most part, what's going to work, what's going to be best. And so I just encourage people, both of these are first line, let your patients decide. It may just come down to their preference. It may come down to what's available in their communities and there's no wrong answer. Um, intrapartum management for these women who are on medication-assisted therapies in pregnancy while they're there delivering in the hospital. We've talked about this before. Don't stop their treatment uh, because the withdrawal from methadone, withdrawal from buprenorphine is really uncomfortable and will manifest as pain. And you're going to have a much harder time controlling the acute pain of labor, of postpartum, um, once you stop those medications. I encourage people to have really good communication with the medication-assisted treatment providers, um, making sure that everybody's on the same page um, and understanding dosing and management. When you are trying to control pain, we obviously would favor regional anesthesia whenever we can, but acute pain can still be managed with opioids. Again, we've talked about this before too, but you may just need a stronger dose or more medication. Um, And one caveat to that is not to use methadone to control acute pain in somebody who's on methadone already, remembering that we've gotten their methadone dose to a kind of a ceiling effect and methadone's very long acting um, and potentially more dangerous than some of our short acting opioids. But don't shy away from whatever it is that you generally use for managing acute pain. Postpartum, again, don't stop treatment. It's really important that postpartum phase, this fourth trimester and postpartum to keep them on the medication that's keeping them safe and keeping them alive. And remember that both methadone and buprenorphine are safe in breastfeeding um, and encourage really good outcomes as far as that bonding. And so breastfeeding should be encouraged. Remember also that this is a real reachable moment for women um, during pregnancy. So take this opportunity when they're seeing you regularly and and getting medications for their opioid use disorder um, to screen for intimate partner violence, which is a a very, very high co-occurrence rate. Screen for alcohol use disorder. I think almost 40 40 plus percent of people with an opioid use disorder also have an alcohol use disorder. 
screen for tobacco use, depression, um, really high co-occurring rate, um, screen and rescreen for um, HIV, hepatitis C, and syphilis, and then remember to prescribe naloxone. Um, I've had pharmacists call me up and say, hey, this person's pregnant, naloxone's contraindicated, um, maybe true, but death is obviously a much worse outcome. Um, and absolutely Narcan is, and naloxone is, is safe in pregnancy. Um, I bring up alcohol use disorder because there is a huge focus and, and rightly so on neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, NAS, um, because we see so much of it now. And, and partly because a lot of women are on buprenorphine and methadone in pregnancy. Um, but I want people to remember uh, that NAS is temporary, um, whereas fetal alcohol syndrome is permanent. And alcohol use disorder doesn't get as much attention, I think because we sometimes feel pretty helpless. Um, so if you get nothing out of this, I want people to remember that we're not helpless and we can help people with alcohol use disorder and that it is really important to do so. The economic cost of fetal alcohol syndrome is in the billions of dollars. Um, I mentioned this before, but alcohol use disorder co-occurs in over 40% of our patients with opioid use disorder. So if you're treating opioid use disorder, like I said, you're probably seeing alcohol use disorder. Remember to screen for this and then remember to treat. Um, naltrexone is the first line treatment in pregnant women. Um, so either the extended release version or the oral version. And then if you're looking at somebody who needs detox, the treatment is long acting benzos, the same as it is in a non-pregnant person. Again, we understand that benzos are not ideal in pregnancy, but alcohol use disorder is so much more disruptive and, and dangerous. And um, these are really the medications that help in those scenarios. Scenarios. One of the biggest problems for alcohol use disorder, as I mentioned, a lot of us don't hear about it, and it's because of stigma. Um, I, I think that this is such a fascinating thing, but the vital statistics data was studied between 1972 and 2013. Um, they looked at these communities where there was the biggest expenditures on uh, advertising the dangers of alcohol use in pregnancy. Um, these are the communities where there were signs, billboards, you know, signs at every liquor store, every bar, um, you know, you couldn't go into the bathroom without seeing this sign pregnancy and alcohol don't mix. And what they found was these communities where they put in the most effort, the most expenditure on these, these types of advertising, they had the worst outcomes for babies um, related to alcohol use and alcohol exposure. And what this shows is pregnant moms with alcohol use disorder they know this. They know that it's dangerous. This is the same for pregnant moms using heroin or using methamphetamine. They know that it's dangerous to mix these things. They fight themselves every single day. The substance use disorder in their brain is, is linked to these parts of their brain that are associated with survival. This isn't something that they can change by willpower or by shaming them or by telling them that it's wrong. If anything, what this does is it keeps them from seeking treatment. So women know that alcohol is dangerous in pregnancy, but they're afraid to tell their doctor that they're drinking and they're afraid to go seek help because, you know, help's not available or, or, or they're shamed or judged because of it. And so um, really stigma in alcohol use disorder and pregnancy is probably our biggest problem, our biggest barrier to care. So key points here, treat opioid use disorder and pregnancy, 
The, the choice between methadone and buprenorphine is up to the patient. Screen for and treat alcohol use disorder and pregnancy. And then reducing stigmas and barriers to care, building trust and safety are really critical. Wonderful. What questions or thoughts do folks have for Dr. Smith? I guess just a comment. This is Dr. Neil Reagan, Medications for Opioid Use Disorder Provider at HealthWest in Pocatello and longtime Echo Idaho participant. About the choice between uh, methadone or buprenorphine, not an option for us in Southeast Idaho. We, we uh, do not have any methadone clinics in reasonable distance from us. And so uh, buprenorphine is our, our go-to drug. And, and uh, I would say that, that for the most part, it's working quite well. Yeah, thank you. I do get the question a lot around, you know, if somebody, you know, should be on methadone instead and it's not available in that community, what do you do for those folks? And and I always just really encourage people to remember to um, do what you can for people, even if you think that they'd be better off with methadone. Um, and but if they can't, if they can't get it, if there's no access to it, then you know, keeping them in your care and treating them with what you have available is always going to be better. Hey, Allison, it's Larissa. I see in the comments, someone has asked and thought you could address this question. If doctors recommend that pregnant females do not take over-the-counter medication and take away prescription medications, how does that match with medical replacement treatment during pregnancy and gestation? I wonder if this is referring to just this whole concept, this big idea that like we tell women don't take Tylenol and don't take, you know, over the counter medication, all these things that like are probably fine. You know, again, this is this idea of dipping our toes a little bit into harm reduction. um, But really, this gets at the same conversation that this is treatment for a disease, for a chronic disease. We don't stop women's blood pressure medications when they get pregnant if we know that, you know, having untreated blood pressure, um, hypertension is going to cause harm. Not treating their opioid use disorder is absolutely going to cause harm. Taking them off of antidepressants in their pregnancy because there's this small risk that babies may have some small effect in the future or something along those lines. These are all considerations and worth conversation. Um, But the bigger picture is that we are saving lives and keeping people from the real downstream effects and and challenges and and dangerous effects of, of their substance use disorders. That again was Allison Smith, a family medicine physician, addiction medicine specialist, and director of mental health at Delta Airlines, presenting MOUD in pregnancy. That lecture was recorded live as a part of Echo Idaho's 2021 Perinatal Substance Use Disorder Series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck, as well as information about how to contact some of the organizations and services mentioned in that talk, are available in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, 
please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Season two of Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible with funding provided by BJA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain was supported by grant number 15PBJA21GG04557COAP, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view or opinion in this recording are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. Well, the contributing voices on today's episode were those of Allison Smith, Larissa Janishek, Lachelle Smith, and Neil Regan. We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. All together, well, you know what that spells. Echo Idaho. Sign up for our free sessions. There's a handful every month. Echo Idaho. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. As long as you've got the internet, you can You can register and more We'll email you the Zoom link If you haven't come before Echo Idaho Sign up for our free sessions There's a handful every month Echo Idaho You can earn CE credit While you're sitting